Now, I want to say something about um, Todd and Mission India real quick. Um, and this isn't to correct Todd. I know he's dealing with numbers up there, but um, it's about five bucks per va- baptism, if you really look at this. Um, and there, he said there's about 2,000 baptisms, but there's actually 2,166. Every time one of these people chooses to be baptized, they're risking their lives. So if he would have come and said there's 166 people that have chosen to be baptized, we would have applauded. But there were 2,166 people. Those aren't just new believers. Those are new believers who are t- willing to take a public stand and risk their lives, their welfare, their livelihood, all of it. So... Um, Todd, well done, good and faithful. I knew where he was. He's so big when he walks in. I mean, he's just, you, between Chris Peters and Todd Vanek walking in, I mean, there's like four other people that don't have to do this. Hey, guys. Um, so well done, good and faithful servant. And your ministry, the one we get to partner with, but keep it up, man. Great, great work. Thank you. Um, we're going to be in the second Sunday of Advent, but we're going to be in a, in a book that my guess is many of you have not read. And that's not an accusation. It's just way back in the middle of the sticky pages. If you have a new Bible and you go back and, you know, we always go to the Gospels and we go to the New Testament. Maybe we go back to Genesis. Maybe we get in the Psalms. We get in the Proverbs. Um, if you really, really, really want to shock your children, you go into the Song of Songs. Um, uh, but this Samuel... I mean, there's the judges, and we like the judges. Uh, that's, that's Deborah and uh, Gideon and Samson. And, you know, there's some great stories in there. We love those. And then we even get into the kings because we get to hear a little bit about David and the Chronicles and all that. Uh, and, and we see when Israel kind of falls apart and gets kind of ugly with the kings. So we, we talk a lot about that. But the Samuel part, this is the transition of God and his people where first it was patriarchs. It was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Joseph, and we just spent a lot of time on Jacob and Joseph in the last, you know, over the course of the fall. Um, and first it was the patriarchs, then it was the judges, these, these men and women that God picked. In fact, if you look in, the, in, in Judges, uh, first, five, first five chapters of Judges, you will not find a man who's the hero. They're always the women. It's so women, if you think that the women haven't had a, had a significant role in the Old Testament, read Judges. Uh, we get excited about that. And then, then there's this time when, when we hear those stories and God has one person, there's one king who's God. So it's a theocracy. God, God, God is the king of his people. God is a covenant God. You, I will be your God. You will be my people. That's how God operates. But there's this time that God knows is coming that his people are going to ask for something to make them look like everybody else. They're going to ask him for a flesh and blood king. Now, God is going to grant that to them. We hear about Saul. Samuel, the prophet, actually anoints Saul and then David because Saul falls apart. Um, but there's this time when God is preparing him, his, preparing his people to still receive from God, God's very word, God's very desire, God's very will, God's very plan. This Samuel, 1 Samuel in particular, um, is that transition from patriarchs, judges, to kings. God doesn't want, he doesn't think it's going to be best for them to have a fleshly king, but he's going to give them one. However, there's always going to be someone, a seer, a prophet, a judge slash prophet, that God is going to put in place to speak the word of God to the people in power. And make sure that that person, that king in power, is also 
dealing with and doing what God's will, doing God's will on behalf of the people. So this transition, we see this little boy raise up and become this prophet of God. And just so you know a little bit about what's going on here, um, uh, Eli is the high priest. And now you'll hear the temple of the Lord here. And we think temple, big brick and mortar. They don't have a brick and mortar temple yet. That, that was, you know, David was the one that wanted it. He didn't get to, to build it. Um, uh, but that's later. This is still him dwelling in a tent, in a tabernacle. Uh, the presence of God, and when you hear the Ark of the Covenant, that's the presence of God and the reminder of the covenant, the presence of God on the earth, period. And the people of God believed that as long as they had the Ark of the Covenant, as long as they had the presence of God, that they were invincible. And they are as long as they're following after God. But when they're not... It gets ugly. Eli is the high priest. He's the one responsible for the presence of God on the planet. He's the one who ministers before the Lord. He also has two sons. His two sons are also priests, and they were awful men. Not Eli so much, but his sons. And God came to Eli and said, hey, Eli, this is what's going on with your sons. And so he confronted his sons, and he said, hey, guys, what you're doing, it's not good. They said, I know, but we're going to do it anyway. And so we let it go at that. So it gets ugly. We're going to hear in this chapter one word. We're going to hear this word, but I'm going to use this word in two ways today. Awful. What happens here is awful. These two men were awful. What God does in response to these two men and their awfulness, their contemptibility, he says, um, is awful. What happens to the people of God because of how they saw God is awful. They had decided... The people, not all of them, but by and large, that because they had the presence of God, they were invincible. So they, instead of serving, knowing, and loving God, they were trying to get God to love and serve them. So now we know that God does serve. That when Jesus came, he came to, to serve, not to be served. But this attitude of God's people that we're going to use God for our benefit instead of allow God to use us for his glory. It's what had changed and tweaked. So he's going to allow something to happen that is absolutely incomprehensible to God's people. And he's going to use it to accomplish his purpose, even though to the people of God at that time, it doesn't feel like it. Now we're in the second week of Advent, and we're talking about peace. But peace, the absence of peace is chaos. The scripture describes God when he speaks into, to when he creates the universe, it says that there was chaos. This is after he creates matter, but there was chaos. And he spoke into chaos and there was order. And with God's order comes peace. So God's desire has always been to restore the peace that he created in the beginning. And it's not us that pushes back chaos. It's not Pharaoh that pushes back chaos. It's not even the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant that pushes back chaos. It's God that pushes back chaos. But God will allow chaos to enter in order for us to turn back to him. One more thing about Eli uh, before we read this passage in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3. Eli's mom was barren. For years and years and years. And she one day came to the temple uh, where she was allowed to be. And she prayed that God give her a son. And she said, Lord, if you give me this, a son, I will dedicate him to your service. 
And so she goes back to her dwelling place. She's with her husband. He grants her a son. She names him Samuel because God had heard her. Now, here's what the name Samuel means. It means several things. It's It's an ancient language. So all of these things are true at the same time. She named him Samuel because God heard her. That's what it can mean. God hears. She also named him Samuel because Samuel hears from God. So this name could mean one who hears God. The other meaning that Samuel has is God speaks. So listens, hears, speaks. Keep that in mind. Now, the other thing you need to know, and this is there's children in the room, so I'll be nice about it. Um, Samuel was born and was raised until he was weaned. Ladies, we know what that means, right? Weaned, okay. Now, probably about five years old. That's an ancient Semitic culture with a modern sensibility. Um, Very unusual to think of a five-year-old still not being weaned. Back then, so he's about five years old. She brings him to the temple. She dedicates him to the Lord's service. He now works for Eli. Eli has become like his dad or grandpa, and he's teaching him how to minister before the Lord. We, you'll hear a little bit about this, um, about when the Lord starts to speak to Samuel. He's probably 13 to 15 years old when this happens, so he's had about 10 years under the care of and under the mentorship of Eli. This is where our story begins. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Now, I'm going to pause already because I want you to see something. This is why we choose a passage like this for Advent. The word of the Lord was rare. Now, we knew that God would speak to Abraham, and he spoke to Isaac, and he spoke to Jacob, and he spoke to Joseph. We've also heard later on the other times that we hear about God speaks to Daniel. He speaks through the prophets. He speaks through, even speaks to David, a king who's coming up in the next 50 to 60 years. But there's another time when we hear that the word of the Lord was rare. And that is 400 years prior to the angels appearing to the shepherds and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom God's favor rests. In fact, just nine months or seven or eight months before that, not, yeah, seven or eight months before that, um, now, anyway, about a gestation cycle before that, God appeared to Zechariah in the temple in the presence of the Lord before the Ark of the Covenant. And he said that you and your wife are going to have a child and you're going to name him. John, he's going to be John the baptizer. And he's like, you can't, my wife's old. He shut him up. God had been completely quiet for 400 years until he spoke to Zechariah and then spoke again to Mary. The word of the Lord was rare. Now that's Advent. We anticipate the Lord's coming. We anticipate God keeping his promises. But I want to warn you of something. Advent is when we kind of pretend that the Lord Jesus has not yet been born. We look forward to the coming of the Christ child. But there's this piece of Advent that's to remind us that he came as the lamb, but he's returning as the lion. He did come. We know he came. And his kingdom has been established already, but it's not yet fulfilled. He's coming back. Is the word of the Lord rare now? No. You own one of those? I own probably 15 of them. And then I have about 40 different translations on computer. I can compare on my phone 
15 different English versions so that I can get all the nuances. I can see from, from standard definition to HD to whatever the new 4K. Uh, I can go between black and white and color. There's so much available to me. Do I let the scriptures own me? Do I devour them? Do I eat them? Do I crave the word of the Lord? Because it is not rare. Since the Gutenberg Press, it's not just the priesthood that has the scriptures, the word of God. It's anyone, everyone. People in India now have the word of the Lord. It is not rare. It was unusual for it to be rare in the, back then, but it has not been rare since the actual word of God, word made flesh, Jesus Christ became a child. It has not been rare. And if we treat it as if it is rare, if we wonder why God doesn't speak, it might be because we're not listening. And you'll see more of that right here. One night, Eli, that's the high priest, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel, that's the little boy, he's probably not little boy, he's probably a young man, 13 to 15 years old, was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he got up and he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went back to lay down. And again, the Lord said, Samuel. And Samuel got up up and he ran into where Eli was. Here I am, you called me, my son. I did not call, go back and lie down. Now, we know from, from other preaching here that in the Old Testament, anytime something is repeated three times, it's significant. I just want you to see here that it's four I also want you to see that the high priest of God did not know enough or the word of God was so rare that he didn't recognize that when Eli or when Samuel kept coming to him, he didn't recognize that the Lord was speaking. Two times the kid interrupts him in the middle of the night. Third time you think he get it. Finally he does. Sorry. My son, I didn't call you. Now Samuel did not know yet, did not yet know the Lord. The word of God, the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now the Lord called Samuel a third time and Samuel got up and he went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the, word, that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went out or went and lay down. In his place. And then I want you to see the difference here. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at other other times, Samuel, Samuel. Now I want to pause for a second. Don't you wish that happened? Don't you wish that in the middle of the night, some stranger was standing next to you going, Trent, Trent, I'd be terrified. 365 times in the scriptures, we hear that when God shows up and speaks, the first words out of his mouth aren't all, aren't usually the name. It's usually fear not, do not be afraid. Why are you afraid? Even when Jesus is walking around on the planet and he, and he, and he goes shh to the storm and, and it quiets down, people freak out when he's walking on waves. People freak out. That's what we do. Sometimes we want, we think, we believe that God, if he would just speak, if he would just show me what to do, folks, everything we need. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't speak. He does. And you can learn how to hear his voice. But there is so much available to us. We have everything that we need to know right here. Do we eat it? Do we make it 
a part of us? Do we love it? And I don't mean love, do we know it? I don't mean know about it. I don't mean know, hear the words. It said that the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The word of the Lord has been revealed to us in the person of Christ and in the scriptures before us. Do we recognize? Do we know the word of God? And I don't just mean the text. I don't mean the information. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God in the beginning. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Do we know? And John 17, Jesus, Jesus says, if, and this is everlasting life, that they, meaning us, know you, the one true God. And that word know there is the same word used for a husband to know his wife in the biblical sense. That kind of intimacy, do we have that kind of love affair with the word of God? Jesus, the word, but the scripture that he left to us. Do we have that kind of love affair? Not the information, not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures, but what the Scriptures point to. He wants us to know Him, the one true God. Speak. Your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. Make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, is kind of what he's saying. At that time, I will carry out against Eli, that's the high priest, everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would, I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning, opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and he was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called to him and said, Samuel, my son. Now think about it. 10 years he's been with this man. I'm approximating. Scripture doesn't tell us how long. But 10 years he's been with this man. He's been like a grandpa. He's been like a father. He's a mentor. He's the one showing him how to go through the rituals, how to minister before the Lord. He's the expert. Samuel's the one learning. God shows up and says, awful things are going to happen to your mentor and to his sons. Would you want to tell him? Would you? I'd be a little bit trepidatious. Just a tad. Like, um. Eli, got to give him credit for courage. Samuel, my son, here I am. What was it he said to you? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you ever so severely if you hide from me anything that he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he's the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. And then the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. And, he, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. God chose a man to be his spokesperson. And he gave such glory to the words that Samuel spoke, that they were powerful and effective. When it says that none of them fell to the ground, it meant none of them went to waste. And then here's what happens. Here's how God keeps his promise, an awful promise, but a promise nevertheless. The people of God thought that the Ark of the Covenant was God's presence on the earth and that they, as long as they had it, they were invincible. And thus, to this point, they had been. 
But they started misusing, they started using the presence of the Lord instead of being used by God's presence. They started seeing it as a magic trick, almost like witchcraft, that if we control this spirit, we get what we want. And God does not have any patience for that, and he still does not have any patience for that. Think of Jesus. When Jesus came, the religious rulers, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, what did they want? They wanted to, to have Jesus, and they wanted him on their side. They could control him so that they are important in the kingdom of God. And why did they kill him? Because he said, no, you don't get to use me that way. I am the Lord. I am, he says, ego me. I am the Lord, your God. So they killed him. People of God were doing the same thing then. And so God allowed the Philistines, their enemies, these evil people who God does not like, they don't treat him well, but we've learned from Joseph and, and how God used Pharaoh that God will use and can use even evil, wicked people to accomplish his task, to even to bless the people of God. Now, God's going to allow something awful to happen to the people of God, something awful to happen to God's enemies so that the people of God are blessed and God's, God, the, the relationship with God and his people is restored. Here's what happens. The Philistines, God allows them to, to, to capture the Ark of the Covenant. And when they capture the Ark of the Covenant, Eli's two sons, both of them, are killed. And they send, as the Ark is going away with the Philistines, um, messenger goes back to Eli. Eli finds out that both of his sons are dead. He falls over backwards, hits his head, breaks his neck. He's dead. Yay. And the people of God are astonished. They have no idea what to do because the presence of the, holy, of the holy God, the Ark of the Covenant is gone. They have no protection. They have no idea what's about to happen. And the Philistines take the Ark off and they think now we've got the most powerful God. We've got this thing that now we, we're invincible. So they bring it into their camp and this weird, ugly, kind of awful thing happens. They, they start getting tumors. And I don't mean like one or two people. I mean, they start getting tumors, like malignant boils, uh, tumor boils. on So much so that they got, they got afraid. So they said, well, we don't want to. So they pick it up and they take it to another camp. They got tumors and tumors and tumors and tumors. Took it to another camp. They got tumors and tumors and tumors. And they, they finally had a meeting and said, what are we going to do? We can't, we're all going to die of cancer here. And so they said, well, let's, let's make a couple of golden tumors. And let's put it on the ark and let's send it back. So they hooked up a couple of donkeys with all these golden tumors and some other golden things. And, and they said, if, if, if we send it off and it turns this way and goes back to the people of Israel, then we know that, that that God was doing this to us as a punishment. And if they turn the other way, well, this is all coincidence. We're going to take it back. I'm summarizing. So sure enough, it gets sent back. And those donkeys know to turn the correct way. And as it's coming into the camp where God's people were, they see it and they come to it and they open it up and they look at the golden tumors and they look at the ark and 70 people are struck dead on the spot. That's awful. It's awful. But after that, through God speaking to Samuel, and Samuel, none of his words falling dead, God calls his people to repentance. They had peace because they had presence of God. And they lost the presence of God and chaos ensued, not only for their enemies, but also for them. But then God worked it that it came back. His presence came back to dwell among his people and his people fell to their knees. They tore their clothes. They put ash on their foreheads and they repented. And God restored not only his relationship with them, but their relationship to him. He restored the peace that he promises will guard our hearts and minds in Christ, now in Christ Jesus. So what? 
an ancient story. Nothing's changed. God still does what he did. God still behaves how he behaved. God still wants the same thing. I will be your God, you will be my people. And if you stop behaving like you're my people, I'm still your God, but I'm gonna allow chaos to enter your life so that you will turn back to me and be restored so that peace can reign. The beginning of the gospel story is glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to humanity on whom God's favor rests. You've heard me tell you time and time and time again that God favors you. You're his favorite. You don't have to do anything to appease him. You don't even have to try to please him. Just be pleased with him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. God is, it's, it's Advent. We're looking forward to his return, but folks, keep in mind that this is an awful story. They start off, it's awful, 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 and then they're full of awe. When the Lion of Judah returns, some of it's going to be awful. The meek are going to inherit everything. The rich, not so much. The poor will be made rich. Those that have sought peace will be blessed. Those that haven't won't. Those that have forgiven will be forgiven. Those who have not will not be. See, God is a God of promise, and the covenant he has has not changed. I will be your God, and you will be my people, period. And his people should look like the God they serve. Do we? Honestly, it's not, a, it's not an accusation. It's not even a condemnation. It's an exhortation. If he came back today, would he look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servants? The word of the Lord was certainly not rare in your midst. Or would he find people doing what the people did then, doing what the people did when Jesus was walking the earth, and doing what a lot of us do now? Using God for our benefit, praying prayers like, Lord, why didn't that deal come through? I'm doing everything right. I even did what Pastor Kurt's been saying for the last couple of weeks. I wrote a check to the church to try to help us in. And then why I did that. And why didn't you give me this thing? I'm doing everything right. Aren't you supposed to? That's not right, folks. That's not Jesus. That's not scripture. We don't get to control what God does. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being very nature, God did not consider equality. We got something to be held on to, but took on the nature of a servant. Even when things get awful, can we be full of awe? Even when things are painful, can we believe and act as if we believe that God will not waste our pain? Are you willing to be mildly inconvenienced so that people in India will know Jesus? Are you willing to be harmed for your faith in Christ and not turn away but be all the more devoted. See, the peace that God promises us is the peace that his spirit will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's not that you won't have difficulty. When Jesus walked the earth, people tried to use him for their benefit and they killed him. Now, no one can say that killing the Son of God, God with skin on, the incarnate deity, 
that people handing him over to the high priest, they say, well, we can't do anything, but we want Rome, you kill him. So people beat him, tore his flesh apart, spit on him, put nails through his wrists and his feet, stuck a spear through his side so that he, and he, and he, he's dead. And they put him in a hole in the ground. And anyone say that that is a good thing? No, it's evil. And God allowed the evil thing to happen even to himself so that salvation might come to all. Is it possible or likely that God will allow terrible things to happen in your life so that something bigger, something more glorious, so that God might get more glory down the road? It's possible. It's even likely in this world there will be trouble. The people of Israel, the people of God, did not think that when the presence of God left their midst, yay, it was devastating. I don't know what's devastating in your life today, but I know of three people, friends of mine last week that were diagnosed with cancer. Are they thinking, yay? No. But you know where they're turning? To the word of God that is not rare. And they're not trying to own God. They're voluntarily allowing themselves to be owned by God. They are personally devoting themselves to his service instead of trying to enlist his service to make their lives easier. Which person will you be when life gets awful and it likely will can you still be full of awe when it gets chaotic? Can you experience the peace of God anyway? He's given us plenty of tools, plenty of opportunity to ingest who he is, to know him, not know about him, to hear the word of God preached and not let just the words land, but to have them fall on hearts and minds. The Jewish people wrote them on their doorposts, on their bedposts. They even hung them in a box around their forehead. Do we love God's word so much that we say, I'm going to make it part of me? So much so that I can't doubt when things get awful. I hope so. Because Advent is the time that people were waiting for Jesus to show up. And I promise you folks, he didn't come because things were going well. He came for such a time as this because things were so bad that the peace, the presence, the very incarnate word of God needed to show up at that time where everything falls apart. Sounds familiar? Let us be a people who point to the word of God in flesh in such a way that when people just see our lives, they know who our God is. Let's pray. Lord, you're God. We're not. And as just about every Jewish blessing starts, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu. Bless you, Lord our God. Lord, we often ask you to bless us, but we bless you for who you are, for what you've done, and for you calling us to be yours. Amen. Even though life gets crazy, it gets intense, it gets awful, 
God never lets his presence be completely gone. Remember that he established Samuel as a prophet before he brought calamity, allowed calamity to come to the people, before his Ark of the Covenant was taken away, before the tumors came to all those, the Philistines, and before it came, and, and, and even while all of that was going on, he still had Samuel in their presence, speaking the word of God to them. So never will God allow you to be alone. He says, I will not forsake or abandon you. So when it looks like his presence is gone, hang on to the hope that you have because the one who promised is faithful. Do not let go. And if you run out of hope, hang on to someone else who has it because they may be the presence of God in your life. The, 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 the person that reminds you that peace is coming, that God is love and that he wants what's best for you even though it doesn't feel like it right now. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. That's the look on his face. God smile at you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.